Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. I'm Andrew. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Andrew. Um, I'm super nervous right now. Um, that's okay. I'm just going to say what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. So um, my earliest memories are, and this is something I heard when I first got sober and I definitely related to, um, my earliest memories of like social anxiety. Like I can remember when I was a kid just like laying in bed, just like beating myself up for things that I'd said in the day or what I was doing or how I felt. Um, and I've heard people say, and I definitely relate, that I didn't know how uncomfortable I was until I took my first drink, and I felt that relief. Um, for me, it was definitely that sort of, like, white light experience. It actually was an alcohol. The first time I really... I had I tried drinking a little bit before that, but where I grew up... I grew up in Hollister, California, and, um, there was, um a predominant Latino gang there, uh, that I hung out with, and so the first time I really got fucked up, I smoked PCP. Um, I was like 12. Um, and that was like, um, that was like the first time I felt that real relief. Uh, that really takes you out of yourself. So, um, so, and I mean, I hit the ground running. I mean, I grew up also really Christian. And so I didn't really know about like social taboos, uh, at all around drinking. So I started drinking like right away in the morning. Um, because I loved it so much, I was like, why wouldn't I drink before I go to school, like, in the eighth grade? Um, and, uh, so, yeah, I mean, things got bad for me pretty quick. I got, you know, I felt like I needed to get drunk or high every single day. Drugs were a big part of my story. And, um, yeah, I mean, really, I was just trying to, to numb myself out. This dog is, like, really cute. Uh, trying to numb myself out as much as possible. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, like, through high school, like, I can remember, you know, I was going to, like, a boarding school at the time, and I would, like, steal the school van and go into Santa Cruz and steal alcohol. And I used to dress in my, like, church outfit to steal alcohol. And, like, I got really good at stealing alcohol. Um, and it was a necessity for me, so that's, like, the main reason I got good at And, um, yeah, I mean, I got expelled from that boarding school like three years in a row it was a christian boarding school so they had to keep accepting me back and forgiving me Um, (laughs) uh, yeah but it was just like it was bad i mean finally like um by the time i was 18 i was like i was like 210 pounds when i started high school and by the end of it i was like 120 i just like wasn't eating i had a lot of eating issues i had a lot of eating issues as well um and uh yeah, I just was, like, really sick. And, I mean, like, I, because I kept getting caught, like, I couldn't really smoke weed and I couldn't really drink. Um, and so I was drinking Robitussin, like, every single day. I would just, like, wake up in the morning and, like, I was working as a janitor at the school because, like, the school had, like, different jobs you could do. And I can remember shoving toilet paper, like, up my nose and having, like, a glass of cranberry juice and just drinking, like, a whole bottle of Robitussin at, like, 7 a.m. And just, like, tripping, like, all day. Uh, and my body was, like, physically rejecting it. But I needed something to be, you know, out of myself. Um, and then, like, yeah, so I got expelled. And, like, I remember when I when I finally got expelled the last time. Oh, I ju- I, what happened was I went on a school field trip to Hearst Castle. And um, I jumped in the Hearst Castle pool. 
which apparently <laughs> is like a really big deal if you do it. I didn't really realize it at the time. Um, but people were like up in arms about it. Yeah. And like Monterey Bay Academy got pepper banned from Hearst Castle and it was like a really big to do. Um, <laughs> and so, and the dean at the, on the last day that I was there, like my mom was like just dissolving into tears and like, uh, the dean was like, you know, if you ever want to help, you can call me up and I can refer you to rehab. And I basically told him to go fuck himself. Um, but it was only like six months after that that like, I was just sick all the time. I was thinking about killing myself every single day. Um, I was a really big burner, you know, so I was like, it was progressively getting worse and like I was getting infections and I was just like really a sick mess. Um, and I think it's important to know for me at least, and I've heard this in the rooms as well, like, I had a sort of philosophical ground that I stood on for drinking. Like, I really felt like it was my right to drink as much as I wanted and to kill myself. And if you saw things the way that I did, like, the objectively right way, um, you would drink, too. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, things just, you know, progressively kept getting worse. Um, and then I ended up getting, like, a, I, I called that dean up, actually, and just, like, started crying. And he, like, referred me to this rehab. And I, I moved to Santa Cruz for a little bit because um, I had gone there. I had been stealing the school van and going into Santa Cruz, so I felt somewhat familiar with the area. And I had like 11 months sober there. And then it occurred to me, I really I didn't have two consecutive days sober from 13 to 18. And so I thought, maybe things just got out of control. Maybe I just like lost my hand on one of the things where I'm not actually an alcoholic. And so I uh, decided to move out of my sober living environment and move into a squat uh, in Santa Cruz, and I just, it was great, I mean, I remember the first time I, like, on the, the porch of the cafe that I was sitting at, I just, like, smoked a joint, and I just, like, oh, had that sense of relief, I was like, what was I ever doing being sober, like, what a, like, yeah, what a mistake that was, um, and so I moved into that squat, and then we basically just, you know, smoked crack and meth, and, you know, went to hardcore shows, and it was a lot of fun, um, and, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, things really just, like, kept getting worse and worse and worse. And then I was in this really sick, like, parasitic, codependent relationship uh, during that time. And I lived with this girl for about a year. There was a couple... I moved around. I moved to D.C. for a little bit. And I moved, a little, like, around a little bit. I ended up in Portland, Oregon. And, um, I, I mean, really at that point, this is how I characterize my alcoholism, is that I was drinking probably less than ever before. I was drinking maybe, maybe like three times a week, you know, and um, I don't think I've ever been so depressed in my entire life. I thought I knew depression before that, but it was just that numb, that numb feeling, you know, where like I couldn't like brush my teeth or like get out of bed. Um, I was just extremely depressed because I didn't have that anesthetic any longer. Um, and so it just sort of occurred to me like, why don't you try getting sober again? It's, it's weird. It's like I'd gone to AA a couple times in that period after I relapse, but I would mainly just go just because I liked A in a lot of ways. Like, this is a weird place. Like, people are sort of really brutally honest here in a way that you don't see in a lot of places. And so actually I'd come here and write about people is what I was doing. Uh, like, not in a mean way, but just sort of like, there's a lot of interesting people here. And um, so uh, I decided to get sober again, and that was April 16th of 2008. Uh, so yeah, just last, just last month I celebrated eight years sober, which is cool. Um, 
Which is crazy because, like, I, if you would have told me that I would be able to go this long without drinking or that, like, I wouldn't think about drinking, I mean, like, I would just, I'd probably just say that, I mean, one thing I really believe when I first got here is that, like, maybe so-and-so had 10 years sober, maybe they had 20 years sober, but nobody loved alcohol as much as I did. Um, And so it took listening to people's stories and relating in before I realized that you guys drink like I drink and you guys need alcohol the way they need alcohol. Um, and so, yeah, it's just been, it's been amazing. So that first year sober that I had, um, I was extremely depressed. I know that a lot of people have like a pink cloud. My first time sober actually did feel a lot of relief. Um, but I mean, really, I just, my first year sober this time around, I was extremely, extremely depressed. Um, and I think that's important for me to talk about because I think that sometimes people can feel like I felt this way at least, like maybe I was doing something wrong, like I wasn't working the steps correctly or but really, the truth is I just did a lot of damage while I was out there drinking. Um, and there's a lot of crazy things that happen. I hurt a lot of people. I hurt myself. Um, and sometimes it just takes longer for some people than others, you know, to to recover from that. doesn't mean the experiences were harder or worse or better or anything like that. Just, it just took me a long time to heal. So, um, yeah, my first year sober, I was just, like, really depressed. And um, I remember they said... You can do whatever you'd like in sobriety. Like, anything that you do when you're drinking, you can do sober. And I was so low, and so I was like, you know what? I'm going to go hitchhiking. And so that's what I did. I year sober, and I went hitchhiking. Um, and I had an experience on that trip that I feel kind of changed my sobriety in a lot of ways. Um, I was down in, like, the Salton Sea area. I was going to go hop on a freight train. And um, I was just sort of staking out. I'd done it a couple times in Santa Cruz. There's a local freight that runs through. And... Um, I met this guy, I was uh, sleeping on the side of the freeway, and uh, I woke up and he was just looking at me, and he had a totally shaved, he had a shaved head, covered from head to foot in tattoos, and um, he was just looking at me, which is, you know, kind of, it kind of freaked me out, honestly. Um, and so I just sort of tried to ignore him and just like was reading, and he came up and he was like, oh, you know, what are you reading? And I told him, and he was like, oh, like I read that too, and he just like, we started shooting the shit about it. Anyways, he ended up being like one of the most quick-witted people I've ever met in my entire life. And um, he told me his life story. Apparently, he had killed two people for in a meth deal that had gone bad in Texas. And, like, it just got not that like that long ago. And um, I sat with him on the side of the freeway, and he, like, smoked meth for two days. Um, and it just sort of occurred to me that, like, I don't know. Um, it almost didn't even seem fair what had happened to this guy. And it's, it sort of, like, made me re- recognize that, like, the things that I was doing now were going to sort of like lay the rest of the way that my rest of my life was. Um, and so, you know, after that, I like went back up to Portland, Oregon and I went back to school. And I also met my now wife on that hitchhiking trip as well. Um, we've been married like three years and, uh, yeah, I mean, my sobriety has just been, um, phenomenal. Hold on, go ahead. Two minutes. My sobriety has been, I mean, it's been shitty at times, of course. I mean, like, life is, like, ups and downs, and there's been times where I've been really low. Um, But for the most part, like, for one, I mean, like, I don't think about drinking anymore. It's not even, like, on the radar for me. Does that mean if I picked up a drink, I wouldn't drink like an alcoholic? Absolutely not. I'd be just as sick as when I left off, I'm sure. Um, But a lot of what I think about now is my relationships to people and in the world. There's this really good part in the 12 and 12 that I think about and I actually read it almost every day for a long time. Um, it was on one page, page one fifteen in the twelve and twelve. Uh, I'm not a big big book thumper, but this is just like one that I really like 
was helpful to me. It basically just says, like, we learned that over-dependence on people is unsuccessful because all people are fallible, and even the best of them will let you down, um, especially when their demands for attention become unreasonable. And uh, that's when a lot of my sobriety is sort of, like, working my relationships with people. Um, what are my expectations? And um, step three, I think, is something I think about is probably the hardest, the idea of, like, turning my will up that's really unpalatable, I think, in a lot of ways. And I think I had to really ruin my life, be just, like, a shell of a person before I'd even be willing to consider something like that. So, yeah, I mean, today, like, I feel happy for the most part. Like, I feel like, I feel present, you know, which is not something I ever really had. Um, so, yeah, thanks for, thanks for letting me speak. With that, I'll pass it off. Okay. So I, uh, I skipped a paragraph here. Many of you thought you were going to get away without coughing up a box. But um, in accordance with our seventh tradition, which states that every AA, ought, every AA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, we have no dues or fees, but we do have expenses like rent and refreshments. We are responsible for meeting our own meeting expenses. We are, we are responsible for our own meeting expenses. There you go. So now Hales will speak for up to 40 minutes. Oh, God. I need you to blab my mouth. Oh, I'm Hales, and I'm an alcoholic, and I'm shaking from head to toe. I know. And, um, <clears throat> I'm Irish. I was born in Dublin in Ireland, and my father was a raging alcoholic. He would come home drunk almost every night crashed the car into the front door or the side of the house or wherever. And then he'd come up the stairs and beat my mother practically to death almost every night. She was black and blue every single morning, and um, she used to say, shh, girls, daddy's not feeling well. And she had a powder on the bruises, you know. And that's how we grew up, whispering. I whispered all my way through school, you know, because I didn't want anybody to ask me could they come to my house to play with me? Because they'd see what it was. It was such a horrible environment to live in. I hated every second of it. And then when it was bad enough, we decided to move. My dad lost his whole business. We had, he had a very big factory that he owned. And, um, you know, the two-car garage, like in the, in the big book and everything. He lost ev absolutely everything. But we had no idea until he came home one day and said, we have to move. I haven't paid the mortgage or whatever it was for months. So um, they, they went off and took us to, our, to Galway, which is um, in the West, and left us with our grandmother. And we were there for a couple of years. And they just said, goodbye, see you later. And we thought, we'd see him later at 5 o'clock that night. And two years later, we saw my mother again. And she had a bump in the front. She was pregnant again. And he was still doing his thing. And he said, I've got a beautiful place in London. So I was so excited, you know, I was just so excited. And my sister, I have two sisters, but one of them, the closest one to me in age, we went across the Irish Sea on the ship when it was like, there was no stabilizers, literally. People were just vomiting all over. And I remember this man with a huge big sweeping brush thing, like you do your car windows with, you know, coming and doing the slop over the edge. And the boat would go down. And I'm just amazed that we didn't end up drowned, you know, the two of us anyhow. But when we got to England, I remember being dramatic like I still am. And I leaned down and, and kissed the ground and said, thank you, God, for bringing us to England. It's going to be wonderful now. 
And I was so excited to get to see our new flat. And it turned out it was one bedroom. And there were three children, the four children there, because my brother was born, and my mom and dad. And the landlord thought there was one new baby, and that was it. So there we were, homeless in England. And in the windows it said, excuse my, my word, but it said no N word and no Irish. Uh, for room for rent, no N-word and no Irish. So, you know, it wasn't that I felt bad enough. It was just like I felt like a piece of crap, you know. And I was only a little girl. I was 11. So then I went to school, and the other kids were just, like, constantly knocking my chair over because I had an Irish accent and um, just beating me up all the time. It was really miserable. So I completely stopped going to school. I'd sit in the park, summer, winter, whatever, Nobody ever said I wasn't there at school. They just, you know, nobody just paid any attention. And, um, you know, that's how it was really growing up. My mom was so busy trying to keep it together that um, she just couldn't, you know, take care of her kids. And luckily we were, we were pretty good kids, so we kind of took care of ourselves. Until I was let go, you know. When I was let go at, like, 15, I moved out as soon as I could. And I moved to a place... Um, in uh, Jersey, in the Channel Islands, which is a little group of islands off the coast of France. It's nine miles from, um, it's an hour by air from England, just right there, just a lovely little islands. And I lived in an island called Jersey. I met this man who was just, I thought he was just beautiful, like just someone who just painted this perfect man for me. And I, I just thought I was so ugly, and I was Irish, and I was like... I was just like one of those little crab things that didn't come out of their, you know, their, their shell. I just felt so horrible about myself. But I couldn't believe it when he said, you know, did I want to go out? Did I want to go out? I think I just vomited about ten times after <laughs> the night before. And I wish I'd kept vomiting because he turned into my dad. He had two attempts at trying to kill me. Um, they got in one time, and I was in the hospital. I was six months pregnant, and he threw me over the balcony, and I landed two stories down mm. at six months pregnant. And um, luckily, I didn't lose the baby, and she's 50 today. You know? And um, it was just this, this horrible, horrible life. you know. And, and I said I'd marry him. I don't know why. I was scared because I felt so ugly, like I said before, and so different to everybody. So he said, you know, we're going to get married. And I said, okay. So I called my mom in London and I said, mom, can you come over? We're going to get married. You know, I'm so stupid. I mean, really stupid. And she said, oh, no, honey, I can't. Daddy's not well again. So I could imagine her with the two big black eyes and a broken nose or something, which I was on the other end just like that. You know, broken ribs, broken jaw, everything broken, you know, that you could think of. So she decided not to come and I understood. And then I got his book out and I called his dad, but she didn't know I had that book. And she said, oh, I'd love to come, dear. Shall I bring his wife and two children? And apparently he'd been one of those that went out for milk and never came back, you know. So at the time I thought, oh, my God, someone shoot me. It's the worst day of my life, this man that I love so much, who was a bastard, you know, a real bastard. But I didn't think that anyone who loved me could possibly be a bastard because I'd seen this turmoil at home all the time, you know. And um, But it was actually the best thing that ever happened. So when the baby was nine months old, um, I was just constantly, you know, like I, got, I would get a job at the front of the office and usually after a couple of months I'd be in the back where no one would see the black eyes and things like that, you know. And um, 
you know, I just thought I have to get away from him. And I got away once and I was beaten so badly that, you know, I just, I could hardly speak and the jaw was wired and all this kind of thing. So I was really frightened to leave in case I got caught because we're back in England now, you know. Anyhow, eventually, one day I woke up and I knew that God was in the room with me. I just knew. And I hated the nuns. I went to school with the nuns. They're horrible people, some of those old nuns. Old, old, horrible old nuns. Anyhow, um, you know, I still got lumps and arthritis on the back of my fingers from the side of the ruler, for God's sake. And that's just for saying hello properly, improperly. But um, I lost my thing for a while. I woke up. I can't remember what I was going to say. God was in the room. Hmm? He said God was in the room. Oh, God came in, yes. Hello, God. <laughs> he didn't tell me he was there, but I knew he was. And, he, and I turned around because I knew there was something special in that room with me. And I said to Michael, this man, you know, you're really good looking. And he was. And I said, and look at me. At that time, I weighed about 90 pounds. And I was black and blue. And I was just a nervous Nelly, you know, shaking all the time, frightened to talk to anybody and all that kind of stuff. And I said, you know, you don't need this. You don't need this baby, and you don't need me. You can go out and get yourself a beautiful girlfriend, and don't worry about us. And that was on a Wednesday. On Saturday, he packed his bags, and he was gone. If that wasn't God, because I was waiting to be shot instantly afterwards, you know, I thought, oh, they still have gone fighting, you know. But anyhow, I didn't have to fight, and he left. And, you know, he had me followed a little bit and everything. But as soon as I got away from him, um, my life changed. It changed for, I turned into a wild thing. And I was a wild thing in the 60s in London. You know, I made a record for Decca. I made a couple, I wrote a couple of songs and the music and stuff. And my record was played every Sunday night on the Decca hour, you know, for the unusual sound from four London girls. And my dad was drunk in my mom's house. He said, turn that fucking rubbish off, you know. <laughs> so that's the, the only decent thing I did in my whole life and he's turned that fucking rubbish off you know so I kind of had to contend with that so you know those kind of things made you want to leave home as soon as possible and I did so anyhow I moved uh, I met this man and he was lovely and um, not as lovely as the other one but better looking actually and nicer manner and I don't remember ever being hit by him and he told me his name was Johnny Walker and I that was funny isn't it same as booze and I'm thinking, Johnny Walker, that's not really, you know, I didn't put it together. And then he told me, look at this grandmother, and I didn't put that together either. And then two years down the line, while I was visiting him in prison because he robbed Barclays, he told me that he actually, his, was, his name was Ernie Davis and he lived with his wife. And I thought, I'm never going to find myself a decent man, you know. I'm just, I'm just like this big thing with the light. Get me, I'm stupid, you know. And, and, of course, then I'd drink more and, I, and I'd feel better about myself. Anyhow, I um, met someone who... I moved to America and, um, you know, I just constantly drinking and I was introduced to, to pot. I was introduced to cocaine. And once I had met cocaine, we were the best of friends, you know. But I was unstoppable. Every penny I made would go up my nose. And I often think... I was laying in bed the other morning thinking, how am I going to pay for that? I thought... Wouldn't it be lovely if you could just stick your hand up your nose and all that money would come out that you snorted all over those years, you know? And, of course, that's not going to happen, but if only you knew. But um, it was just, I lived for every day. I wasn't there for my child. I was there for her. She went to a private school. She wore a uniform, the whole nine yards. But emotionally, she had nobody. 
you know, she had other women, but she had them. But she didn't have me emotionally. And one of the reasons was that I didn't know how to be there emotionally because my mom had never been there emotionally for any of us. And her mom had never been there emotionally for any of them. You know, so it was just how it goes down the line, down the line. Anyhow, I ended up marrying this guy that was about eight years younger than me and big mistake, big mistake. It's like now I had two children. <laughs> Although some of the other things were nice, but, you know, he was gone in nine months and um, because I asked him to go, you know. And then I met someone else um, who was a bit older and he worked flying airplanes for the funny, farm, funny people, you know, in the, in the government. And I fell madly in love with this guy and he with me and... Um, we, I, that started my drinking and my drugging and my serious, you know, putting myself in terrible positions where I could get killed or murdered or whatever, you know. Uh, I lived in Harlem for a year by myself, and I would snort probably um, Ajax, whatever that is you clean the toilet with. I'd pay 100 bucks for a line of Ajax, you know, that was on the back of the toilet thinking it was the finest cocaine, as they told me. You know, I'd come out with a terrible headache. But, um, you know, my life was absolutely insane. And these little kids liked me. They were probably this chap's age. They would hotwire the school bus and take me home. <laughs> it, onto, from, from East 125th to 118th Street. You know, I felt like a queen. I was picked up by the stolen school bus and dropped off at home. <laughs> you know, and then I'd call everyone that I'd never met in my life, you know, that I might have passed by and say, come on over to my house, you know, free booze and pot and bring any drugs that you have. And that was it, you know. My whole life was around drinking and drugging and not feeling. I don't think I ever had a feeling. If I did, I was so quick to replace it with something to drink, you know. Um, I slept with people's husbands. Um, I didn't even feel bad about it. I feel bad about it now. You know, most of the wives are dead now, and I'm still going on. But at least, <laughs> you know, I mean, I just say, don't make amends to the wives, you know, because you're going to piss them off, and it'll ruin their marriage if there's anything of it left. So, of course, I didn't do that. But um, these funny people that my husband worked for were actually, you know, had a lot of power in the United States. So um, I would go on the plane, there's one C-130s, those great big planes, you know, like the Army has four engines, four propellers and all that. And we'd go on, the plane was called Juicy Lucy, and we'd go on Juicy Lucy as far as they could take me in the islands, and then they'd go to Angola or some other place in Africa, and they'd drop me off on some island, and like about a few days before they were coming back, I'd get a, a message from the tower. These were little tiny towers in these, some of these places because they, they didn't fly into big airports where they normally would fly, you know. And I'd get a message, you know, Juicy Lucy's coming by on the 5th, be, in the, be on the runway, you know, and that's, that was my life. I'd be on the runway, like, you know, powder all over my nose, looking for this big airplane. <laughs> thinking it was perfectly normal, you know. I mean, who else does that? And... Um, you know, I remember when the plane used to take off, I used to stand behind him, he was the captain, and I'd pretend I was skiing, and I thought I could really actually get off the ground without that plane. I was so high. I just, it's the most wonderful life I've ever had. You know, here I am skiing, you know, above the ocean and everything, and just a complete lunatic. Lunatic. There was no space for any sanity, you know. 
and don't ever say, you know, do you think you should have done that to me? Because I would just attack, you know, like how dare you talk to me like that or something? How dare you? I don't do any drugs and I don't, I don't drink more than anybody else, which of course was a complete lie. I remember I woke up one night and I was in Florida. We were actually, the plane came home and we were in this hotel in Florida and I went down to Florida from New York because we lived in Manhattan at that time to meet the crew and everything. And they came into this little private airfield and then they came over to the hotel and I was waiting for them. So the, the thing was, we'd usually sit down and have about 20 drinks, you know, and then we go and have dinner and then we have another 20 drinks and they talk about bullshit and the airplane and all that stuff all night long. And I couldn't care less as long as they kept talking and I could keep drinking, you know. Well, one night, my husband said, I'm not having a final final. That's enough final finals. Because I said, just one more final final. That was like the 10th time, you know. So that's all I remember, except when I woke up. And I remember I was on the floor, and I couldn't. I tried to move my mouth, and I couldn't because there was a gag in my mouth. And I tried to move my arms, and I couldn't because they were tied behind my back. And I tried to move my ankles on my feet, and I couldn't because they were tied together too. And then I looked down, and I had no clothes on. So I thought, this is really a situation that I have to get out of. How did that happen? I was at the bar saying, final, final. How did I get here? You know? And I just thought, well, there's a lump in the bed over there. They're waiting. They're taking a nap before they do me in, you know. So I managed to get up to the door like this, because it's hard when you're gagged and bound and your hands are behind, you know. And I got this big hotel door opened by all this stuff and coming back, and then it slammed and hit me on the ass. And I'm out in this big, long, long, long corridor, three times as long as this room. So I started hopping. Hoppity, hoppity, hop, all the way down, hoping that a door would open, praying that one wouldn't. I didn't know what I wanted. So I hopped into the foyer, and it was like my 15 minutes, right there and then. Like, everybody who ever worked there in the men's department of the hotel, anyhow, was, what happened? Oh, poor lady, what happened? And I'm gagged. I have no clothes on. What do you think fucking happened? (laughs) So I just, I don't Someone thought to bring a curtain or something out and give it to me, you know. But, I mean, it was just ridiculous how they kept talking to me and I kept, you know, talking back. And um, so they called the police, and these two awful, awful, awful. Well, there were two eggs on legs. I don't know if they could have caught me if I'd ran, to be quite honest, but they were policemen. And their bombs were hanging out of the back of their trousers. It was really disgusting. It looked like a joke on Floridian police officers. You know, it was like a skit. So they what's the what's the matter? And they looked at me and they kind of and then the uh, the manager told them to go down. I said I just woke up on the ground and, and someone in the bed tried to murder me. That's what I felt, you know. So um, I could see them rolling their eyes as they went down the corridor and they came back about twenty minutes later. And I went, well, where's the person? And they go, do you want to shut the fuck up now or do you want to come in the back of the car with us? And I thought. Now, that would be something that I'd have to kill myself after if I went in the back of the car with these two tubbies because I knew I'd never see daylight or the police station. You know, I'd be dumped somewhere else. And I said, no, what's my option? They said, you can just stay in another part of the hotel. And the ship's funds, which was the airplane funds, was thousands and thousands of dollars because it costs $3,000 for a little bag of ice in the jungle, you know, if you can imagine that. I'm not exaggerating. So these policemen went off quite a bit richer than when they came in that night. 
and left me in a room with the security guard outside. And I stayed in there for two days. Um, I never heard... It, it turned out the lovely person who'd done that to me was my husband, who said that I'd gone completely insane and was looking for my contact lenses, which were actually in my eyes while I was looking for them. So it was very difficult to find them, isn't it? They were already in there. So, I, you know, he just said she's, she's a crazy person and, you know, she's, she's just crazy, psycho. And they believed him. And... Um, so I stayed in that room. I called everybody I ever met on this in this life. I mean, it was like $5,000 or something, the phone bill from that room, for, just for me calling people and telling them that I was locked in this room and a security guard and I hadn't done anything. And of course, I'd gotten drunk and out of hand and had nervous breakdowns and everything else. So that's kind of how it was getting, worse and worse and worse, you know? And um, it's just, even against the other wives, some of them were okay, but I was the one that became a total blackout drinker. I'd never know when it was going to happen, and I'd never know when it started. But I'd end up by either... Well, one time I ended up in another country. I remember drinking in Oakland Airport after seeing someone off, and I had flight privileges, so I didn't have to pay a lot to get on airplanes and stuff. But I'd, apparently I'd been dropped off by a United flight in Belgium. And I woke up in this hotel, and I was looking out the window, I thought... How, where, you know, what, what happened? And I looked out and everything was in French. And I thought someone's playing a joke, you know. Someone's playing a joke. They put posters outside the hotel window so that I think I'm in France or something. And then the doctor came in. And it was a, a Belgian doctor. And he said, I feel so bad for you. He's just like, I thought it was Jesus when I opened my eyes and he was standing up looking at me because he was so, he had big, beautiful blue eyes and long hair. And he was so gentle and everything. So I thought I died. I didn't know whether I'd gone to hell or hell yet. But it was hell afterwards. But um, he just, how did you get like this? I said, I don't know. I was having a drink in Oakland. And this is where I ended up. I couldn't even remember going into the hotel and, and getting a room and all that stuff. I mean, it was complete blackouts. I couldn't remember if I'd met anybody and maybe had sex. God forbid, you know, I'd feel sorry for them. <laughs> but anyhow, um, my life was like that, you know. And then, um, oh, there were so many things. Like I decided that I wanted to have flying lessons. And I was in California at that time. And um, there's a little airport out there, Hayward Airport. It's like a, it doesn't, it's not where the big jets come in or anything. So this guy out there. His dad had been killed in an airplane out there. So, of course, I picked the one whose dad had gone down in flames, you know, to teach me how to fly. And it turned out that he would give me free lessons in, in exchange for probably sex, which I wasn't interested at all in sex. Not with him, anyhow. And certainly a 30,000-mile high, mile-high club would never happen with this fanso. But anyhow, I just... You know, we're, we're going along, and he keeps talking. I can't concentrate. Before you know it, I was on the on the free, on the the uh, runway and off in the bushes in Hayward. And I remember getting out of the cockpit and sliding off the wing and running, running down the, the thing, the um, runway, and going into the bar and begging for a margarita. That's all I could think of. I have to have a drink because that was a nightmare, you know. And, um, you know, anyhow... How much time do I have? 17. Oh, my God. <laughs> I have to tell all my secrets. <laughs> anyhow, so um, I met, uh, I married this guy, and um, we had a really good good marriage, I suppose. 
you know, I mean, he was gone most of the time, so that made it even better. And I had this really nice apartment in Manhattan, and, you know, he was gone for a month and home for a month. And then he was gone for three months and home for a month. So I didn't really feel um, that I had a husband. But during that time, something happened. I was in the bar one night, and I'd go in there at five o'clock. For, every night pretending I'm going in for happy hour. This had been for two years. It's like, they don't know. I don't, is this happy hour? Oh, sit down, like the lunatics here, you know. So I sit down and I say, I'll have this. And then the bartender was the bartender. He was always there. And, you know, happy hour would go by and everybody would leave and it would be just me and him. And he tried to set me up with a few people. But the last person he set me up with, he said, you kind of scared him. He said, what was that language you were speaking? And I said, I don't know. I just speak a little bit of Gaelic, a little bit of, of French, and a little bit of Spanish. Did I have a whole conversation? He said, oh, yeah, for hours. And I thought I was a devil. I thought the devil was like I was speaking in tongues or something. So he said tongues. I said, oh, my God, the devil. And that scared the shit out of me. And I went out, left that bar immediately. I went to another one. But, <laughs> but anyhow, you know, I was back in that bar again the next night. And I said, I noticed he had a big ring on. And it had like 30, 33 written on the little ring, on the big ring. And I said, what's that, Frank? And he said, have you, I said, have you been um, married 33 years? And he goes, oh, no. He said, I've been sober 33 years. And I said, oh, my God. He said, <laughs> 33 years. I mean, that's pretty amazing, you know, five minutes for me. And um, so he said, let me give you another drink, honey. And he used to give me these big, I swear to God, they were. you could have... Three goldfish could have lived in there for a month. They were that big. The big, huge goldfish full of wine. Uh, goldfish bowl. And I said to him, just out of the blue, I said, Frank, do you think I have a problem? And he goes, oh, no, honey, have another drink. So that was the best news ever. It's like winning the bloody lottery, you know. So I said, oh, thanks, Frank. I was kind of worried about that. And he says, yeah, no, you're fine. He said, Bernie's going to come in tomorrow. He wants to meet you again and take you for dinner. He knew I was married, this guy. He'd been sober 33 years, this guy. But he wanted me to meet Bernie, who was a gangster. And Bernie was, like, a really nice guy and everything, but I wasn't interested in gangsters at that time. Earlier, when I was drinking, I didn't mind a gangster now and then. I, was, I worked in a nightclub where gangsters, you know, would come, chimneys, things, and um, they'd give me huge tips. You know, so that was great. I never talked, said anything to anyone about what business they did or anything like that. So after him telling me that, I remember coming home and I tried to get into the Mexican restaurant next door. I was on 8th Avenue and 56th Street. And I knocked on the door and they're going, because I remember a couple of nights before I'd been in there, like three in the morning or something, and some poor sod was on the end of the bar, you know, in the corner, the last seat in the corner, trying to enjoy his misery all by himself. And I decided that I was going to cheer him up, whether he liked it or not. So I started cheering him up, and I don't know, I thought, I felt funny when he asked me if I wanted to go to a party. I actually thought he was going to murder me because I'd ruined his night. But I went to the party. Well, I got as far as the cab. And then we're in the cab, and my insanity comes out, and I said, you're taking me to one of those sex swap parties. <laughs> Poor guy, he goes, he just leaned across me, opened the door, and shoved me out. Now, I did roll, I didn't have any bruises, but I just, you know, rude. 
into the bar that was next on, on next to me and had another drink and told, oh, the poor bartender was going to give her a fucking drink and shut her up. This man did this to me. Ooh, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, I was just, I was just a, a big hemorrhoid, a pain in the ass, that's what I was, to everyone who ever met me when I was drinking. They couldn't wait to get rid of me, you know. So anyhow, I tried to get into the, into the, the Mexican restaurant, Cancun, and I'd been to Cancun itself, and I was thinking I was thrown out of there too. I can't quite remember how I left, but I know I came in a lot different to how I was let out. And um, I, uh, they wouldn't let me in, so I came home, and I just went to bed. And I woke up the next morning, and I'd had quite a few drinks. I used to, I used to ha- have some cocaine or Ajax, whatever you prefer to call it. <laughs> and then I'd have something to smoke. And then I'd have drinks all in between, trying to change the way it was going. And it was always going this way, you know. And it was going this way, I knew I was in trouble, even though I didn't know it at the time, because I knew I was going to be in a big blackout thing, you know. But um, so I, I woke up, and I walked over to the phone, and I said, Hello, <laughs> do you know where there's an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting anywhere, like I'm a... A professor doing a paper on AA, you know. And she goes, Yeah, there's one down the street. Where are you? And I told her, and she said, It's 10 minutes and it starts in 15. It's 10 minutes walk and it starts in 15 minutes. And I went. And that was July the 19th, the 18th, 1988. So I was 45, I'm 73 now, and I'm coming up on 28 years. Mm. And believe me, I am the most willful person. I have pained myself, attempted, I stuck my head in the gas oven even, you know, and um, a dog saved my life. He smelt the gas and his owner broke the door down and they had to bring me back. But rather than, um, and this was while I was drinking still, but, you know, when I, when I, I just, I suffer from depression. Right now I have a lung disease, which I'll probably die of. I mean, I could last five minutes or 50 years if I live that long, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, I have back problems. I have a lot of, of things that, that are happening to my body, and they just move me into an old people's home. So I'm not happy about being there at all, you know. If I said if anyone were, even brings up the subject of um, depends to me, I'm going to knock them out right there and then. <laughs> depends on those lovely diapers they give to old ladies like me. So I said, I'm not going to have that, you know. And, um, you know, I've been fighting it since I moved in. It's a terrible adjustment to me. You know, when you turn, what, I'm, I'm 73, which is, you know, it's amazing I'm 73. I thought I'd be long gone by the time I was 40, you know, and I prepared myself for that. But 73, in a young mind, the body's all falling apart, you know, and saggy where there shouldn't be, and there's hair where there shouldn't be, and none where there is. And all this, everything, and the, instead of in my bathroom cupboard, there's preparation age instead of Chanel number five. You know, there's all these different things that change your wardrobe from a young person to an old person, you know. But I still have a great sense of humor, and I still have a lot of laughs in me. And, you know, I, I got sober, and I've never had a drink since. I don't want any applause for that because really it's just a gift from God. I set my mind to it. My mother was murdered. I didn't drink. I waited around the corners until the woman came out and I wanted to kill her with the car, but I didn't. Um, I had breast cancer. I didn't drink. Instead, I came to the rooms. I was living in Manhattan when I had breast cancer and I just walked into the meeting and I said, five minutes, 
And I thank you. And I just said, you know, I, I, uh, I was, I was uh, told I had breast cancer today. And I was surrounded by women and some men. And I was carried through the whole thing like a princess, you know. And every problem I've ever had, if I'm honest enough and go to meetings and tell the truth and be good to other people and do service, it's really not a big deal, you know. It's, this is a free life. I've got this beautiful, free life. I wake up in the morning and I can do whatever I want. I don't have to think, of, oh, my God, who is that, you know? Because this is none of that in my life anymore. I'm totally divorced. My husband died um, after he divorced me. It must have been a shock. But anyhow, <laughs> so I guess, um, you know, I want to thank Guillermo for, for um, asking me to speak. And I really um, feel blessed to be able to speak here and carry the message. So thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.